Welcome to Method to the Mathness podcast, a podcast about the universal truths in mathematics teaching and learning. We are your hosts, Nikki Lalonde and Jennifer Lenhart, and we are so glad you're here. Our hope and our vision and goal for this podcast is to have conversations that both affirm what we know to be true about teaching and learning mathematics and to inspire all of us to keep growing and learning. Welcome to this episode of Method to the Mathness, where we have an incredibly timely conversation with Dr. Carrie Cutler. She's an award-winning university professor. She's passionate about early childhood education and mathematics. She is currently a clinical assistant professor of mathematics at the University of Houston. She has recently released her YouTube channel, where she features 20-minute math ideas, as well as support on how to teach math at home. This is a great resource for both educators and parents. I'm also extremely proud to share that she recently released her book with Math Solutions, Math Positive Mindsets, Growing a Child's Mind Without Losing Yours. So without further ado, here's our conversation with Dr. Carrie Cutler. Well, welcome, Carrie. We um, just want to say thank you so much for joining us today on Method to the Mathness. We're excited to have this conversation with you. It's a treat for me. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. We're excited to um, hear about your new book that's coming out and a little bit just about who you are and um, how you've, you know, developed into this educator and author that you are. And um, one way that we want to kick off sort of that conversation is if you could tell us a little bit about your math story as as a math learner specifically, um, we would love to hear about that. Sure. Well, I think when I was growing up, I loved math and I felt like it came easily like um, most young kids do in elementary school. And when I got into junior high and started to have to really work hard to understand math, I realized that um, even if something doesn't come quickly, it can come if you work hard at things. And I had a math tutor and I tell my students even today and my own children, I had a math tutor from junior high all the way through college and through my master's and through my doctorate in all my math classes because I really wanted to understand, not just get by. And I think that that is something that we have to help kids to recognize and parents too, because sometimes parents get a little nervous about kids that have to work hard at things. And and they think that the word struggle is a bad word but maybe it's not. Maybe struggle is where the learning happens. So I think for part of my math story, it's been learning to accept and appreciate struggle and how it's helped me um, grow mathematically and also to appreciate that um, in my own students that um, it's okay if, if they don't get it the first time around that I can work hard to help them understand using other techniques and, and other lessons and games and activities Um, to struggle is to learn. Carrie, as you were talking, I was thinking about the relationship between um, 
what you're describing is like struggle and hard work. And when you said hard work, then you mentioned some creative creativity approaches, whether it's creative teaching or creative ways to get at the learning. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to the, how do we move from that initial, oh my gosh, this is hard, which can trigger some fight, flight, or freeze. But then we know that like learning and creativity we can't be in that like mind frozen mode that sometimes struggle can trigger. Can you speak a little bit about navigating that space between, wow, I wasn't expecting this to be difficult. And now what do I do? And the sort of that like stall out that occurs for us as adults and also for students. Well, I think saying, admitting that something is hard is not a weakness. Admitting that something is hard is the first step in being intentional about fixing it, about getting better at it. You know, I'm, I'm fine with that. I'm fine with saying things are hard. I mean, teaching is hard. Being a parent is hard. Um, sometimes math is hard. And just admitting that is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of being intentional about our effort there. And being persistent is so key. So when we see our students having that kind of uh, lay down on the desk and, you know, put their head down, I don't get it. We like to say, I don't get it and, and wait for someone to come in and rescue them. Uh, we sometimes do that as teachers too. We just, I can't get to this kid. I, I feel like giving up. But that's when we say, you know, this is when I need to get creative. So I need to think mm-hmm. out of the box. I need to do a little more research on my side to find more ideas or ask someone else what they've done that has helped. You know, I love um, implementing children's literature in math classrooms and helping kids to see the real world aspects of math through that or lots of hands-on materials and using technology appropriately. There are so many supports that we can use besides just telling kids how to do things. You know, we've tried that for generations, just telling kids how to solve things. And it's made kids be, uh, have that learned helplessness or have that fixed mindset that if somebody doesn't come in and, and tell me how to do it, I'm not going to be able to figure it out. Yeah. You know, one of the things you touched on is that idea that um, like a sort of a learning mindset or a fixed mindset. And I know in your book, you sort of talk about mindset in really accessible language. Can you share that with our listeners? Sure. So Carol Dweck and Joe Bowler's research about growth mindset really informed a lot of my own work with my my students at the university who are learning to be teachers. And I teach them the class on how to teach math. And um, a lot of them enter the class with a lot of anxiety about mathematics. You know, maybe they had a negative experience growing up with math or Maybe they were told, and this is so sad, but maybe they were told, you know, you're not really a math person. You're really more of a language arts person. Or maybe, and this is sad also, maybe a teacher once said, oh, don't worry about it. I was never good at math either. And when we send kids these messages, if it's a parent or a child, or excuse me, or a teacher, we're really giving them permission to to have that fixed mindset. So I decided to call it a math positive mindset. Because I really wanted kids and and adults to understand that how they think about themselves as doers of math affects how they learn it. You know, the brain research shows that when we have a fixed mindset and we encounter a challenge, 
the brain doesn't fire um, and try to figure out the challenge as much as if we had a growth mindset. The person with a growth mindset's brain will will fire and those connections are, are sparking all over the place to try to figure it out. That's kind of where the learning differences can occur in mathematics. When we think about attitudes about mathematics, if we think we can make sense of things, then we will engage more with those challenges and those mistakes. And it actually helps us learn better. So when we tell kids, you know, you're really not a math person, that just gives that fixed message of um, inability rather than when we tell them, this is difficult and you can keep working at it. And when you work hard at hard things, that's when you learn the most. And those are the kind of messages that we need to to tell kids Mm -hmm. and to tell ourselves too, as helpers of math, you know, sometimes it's hard to sit across the the table from a child who's struggling and feel like a struggling parent Mm -hmm. or a struggling teacher. But we need to tell ourselves, this is a struggle and I am up for it. And I'm just going to keep plugging away at it because I know eventually we're going to get some progress. Absolutely. So in, in, in light of thinking, you know, about a math positive mindset, um, sometimes there isn't a math positive mindset when it comes to homework. And one of the things that you, um, challenge educators with is to think critically about the homework that they're putting in front of students. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. I think we do have to be a little, we have to be honest with ourselves about the homework that we give as teachers. You know, there's lots of reasons for giving homework and, and sometimes it's to um, help kids reinforce um, things that they're learning in math class. Sometimes it's to help parents see what's going on in math class. You know, there's lots of reasons for giving homework, but we need to be upfront about it and, and honest with ourselves about it. If it's just busy work, then we need to adjust that. And we can. We can assign homework that um, engages families better than we have in the past by, you know, ex- uh, exploring their own experiences around the home. Like I have some suggestions in our in the book about um, rather than doing a worksheet about graphing, you know, pull out the stuffed animals and, and put those in groups and graph those or pull out this, the cans from the cupboard, the soup and the vegetables and the fruits and graph those, you know, there are ways to make homework that's more real world and more engaging for families. And honestly, to teachers, that kind of homework gives better insight about children's um, interests and in their experiences with math and also into their family life and, and how we can make our teaching more culturally responsive to our students. So I think we could be doing a little bit better with the type of math homework that we assign, Um, maybe less reliance on worksheets and those kinds of things, rote procedural things, and more on exploration and problem solving and engaging families more. Thank you for sharing that. And I, I think it is really, I agree with you. It's really important for us to make sure that the homework we assign is intentional and that we do think critically about it. And so I appreciate that being a part of your message as well. And something that you mentioned a couple of times in in that challenge, if you will, that inspiration to think about the homework is you talked about engaging parents and engaging families. 
And um, I guess I'm wondering what advice would you have for a teacher that is really trying to engage families, parents, caregivers in their child, you know, their child's learning? Oh, that's a really great question. Um, some parents are unsure of what their role should be as far as a math helper or a support to a teacher. And sometimes parents are intimidated by math or maybe they didn't have the best school experience overall. And so they aren't sure about their uh, competence in helping their kid with math homework. When in reality, what the parent can do is a lot. They can be a support and they can be a cheerleader and they can be a math positive uh, speaker to, to math to their child. And all of those things are going to definitely contribute positively in, in a lot of different ways, maybe that aren't necessarily measurable by homework grades. Um, but teachers can help parents understand what that role is. Um, when, when teachers communicate frequently with parents and let them know how things are going and what they're learning in math and use everyday language, not jargon, you know, things that parents are going to relate to and not be upset by uh, if they don't understand right off. Um, connect to parents' experiences and utilize those and to cultures in the home. Also, treating parents as partners rather than um I don't know. Sometimes there can sometimes be a little bit of a competition, a little bit between parents and teachers or or some miscommunications can happen. But we need to treat parents as partners because they they are on our side when we put them on our side. Um, the homework that we send home can be um, good ways to build that that bridge of communication. But also, I think we could do a little more with sending home uh, little math positive books. There's lots of great growth mindset oriented picture books. There's a lot of picture books that um, treat mathematical topics as well that would be a good kind of engagement piece to get parents and families involved. And those um, little take-home books could have simple activities. I give a lot of suggestions in, in Math Positive Mindsets about how to use more children's literature. And also parents are always asking about what websites they can have their children use or apps to support their math learning. And if teachers stay up to date on those uh, technology pieces, they can be a resource to families as well. Such interesting insights about tone and about connection and thinking about the mathematics content that we teach, but also thinking about the human beings that are encountering that and parents being part of the, being allies on the team of creating those math positive mindsets for um Really, like, can you imagine the difference in a in our local community? I mean, literally, like, think about your own neighbors, your own neighborhood, your own PTA, whatever that is. Like, what would it be like if you were sitting at the meeting and it wasn't like, oh, you should have Carrie do the books. She's a math person and no one else is, right? Like, this is a really common social encounter. Mm -hmm. And how different would it be if it was not that way? Yeah, I think that's true. I think... Uh People don't have any qualms about saying, oh, I'm not a math person. What is at the heart of that? What is it? That, do you have a sense? At the heart of it is, um, is kind of that misconception that's been around forever that there is such a thing as a math gene, that you're either born good at math or you're not. And it's just simply not true, but it's perpetuated, you know, generationally. And when I do workshops for teachers and I, and I tell them, do you know there's not a math gene? 
a lot of them will argue with me. <laughs> They'll say, oh, no, no, you know, I wasn't born good at math. Well, nobody is. I mean, maybe there are a few people, you know, it's a very, very small percentage um, of people who, who genuinely have um, a neurological gift for it or a biological gift for it. I don't think that we're talking about those instances. We're talking about a, a typically developing child who has the capacity to learn mathematics. That's 99% of our students, you know, and our children. So we have to have kind of more of an open mind about who is a math person. You are a math person. And so are you. And so are you. And so am I. And that can be a beautiful thing rather than excuse an excuse for um, avoiding mathematics or uh, avoiding um, even everyday kind of problem solving that involves math. Mm. I think that's what actually, so I want to say two things. One is, um, I think that can be a place where we see it when a person says like, I'm not a math person or whatever, and we know them to be a wildly effective problem solver. I think that is almost always the first point of evidence that I point to, to say like, of course you're, I mean, the basics around the way you walk through the world, while it may not be on a formula sheet, is absolutely mathematical. You're mathematical in your approach. You're, you know, I see it differently. I see it in a different lens. Um, and I think that traditional success in a math classroom is different than being a mathematical thinker, um, especially if your traditional classroom experience growing up was were you the fastest and the rightest the most and that's how you thought, like, that's how we framed what it was to be mathematically successful. Um, but as you were talking, I was also reminded of this, one of my all-time favorite quotes from Rochelle Gutierrez, and she says, math ability is not a real thing, but the trauma associated with it is. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of what you're describing, that we have generationally, re, you know, these ingrained um, experiences that are quite traumatic for many of our students who then grow grow up and want to be educators or parents or engage with children as caregivers or whatever. And the carry forward of that math trauma is part of what I see in your vision to sort of to, to shift the trajectory or to pivot hard against that sort of reiteration of a traumatic experience around learning mathematics. I think that's true. You know, every semester I have a hundred 120 students who are just about to graduate and become teachers. And we work really hard to overcome what is genuine math anxiety, which is a yeah. true, you know, a kind of a reaction. It's, it's genuine. It's got all the stressors, the increased heart rate, the sweating, the nerves, the avoidance, all of that <laughs> is real. And right. we work hard and you know how we do it is by doing math. <laughs> We mm. just we just get all the materials out and we do the math games and the math lessons. And at the end, we say, wow, didn't we learn a lot by just doing math and mm. having fun? And it's fun. And we take pictures and we mm. show them to each other and say, look at how we're smiling. Don't you want your students to feel like this? And mm. the way to do that is to make math engaging and interesting and fun and play like it's not by having time to test. It's not by doing worksheet after worksheet. It's not by um, rote procedures or, you know, heavy reliance on assessment. It's on making math accessible and interesting. Hmm. And I think we can do a better job, a better PR job, if you will, about, um, about hmm. 
math being a positive thing and not a punishment and not reserved for just a few people. I love teaching my math class. And a lot of times my students will, will tell me at the end of the semester, you know, I really didn't think I was a math person, but since you told me everybody is, I tried to act like it. Hmm. And after I started act like it, acting like it, I realized it was true. And now I'm not afraid to go teach math. Hmm. I thought I would just teach language arts, but now I'm not afraid. So let's remove the fear. Let's remove the hmm. avoidance. Let's hmm. remove the drudgery and let's make it fun and interesting. Hmm. We can do it. Well, absolutely. And Carrie, one of the things that I was thinking that I really wanted to ask you was, you know, what's a practical place to get started if you're a teacher working on growing a math positive mindset? I think to a degree, you just kind of gave the very first step of, I have to think of myself and and is being a, a learner of math and being capable and have myself a math positive mindset as a teacher in that classroom. And, and, and so I guess, so what would be the next, next step, <laughs> if you will, on that practical place to get started as a teacher that's really working on growing the math positive mindset? Well, I think a, a key to it is surrounding yourself with other people who are math positive, if you can find them, <laughs> and being a leader of that in your sphere of influence. You know, to to just say, and I say straight up in my class, we're not going to talk bad about math in here. <laughs> we're just going to talk good about math. And we're going to exude this positivity about math because talking about it in negative ways doesn't help. So I would say surround yourself with positive people who um, are willing to um, put forth effort to become better teachers. And also to look at the kinds of strategies that we use. Are we, are we implementing strategies that promote effort and grit and persistence? Or are we uh, relying on kind of the one-off experiences? If we want kids to learn to problem solve and to feel accomplished for solving problems, then we need to give them genuine problems to solve and opportunities and time and materials to do those things. So I think our, our curriculum and our pedagogy needs to be aligned with those types of experiences for ourselves and for our students. Mm. I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. You know, you said surround yourself with math positive and, and stating sort of the expectation. And I was immediately reminded of that tone shift of like, what is the culture that we want to create here? And what are the norms that we set around things that are hard? And in a way, like blaming yourself by saying, I'm not a math, you're saying that's not a thing we do here. It's okay to say math is hard, or I am confused, or even this experience makes me feel anxious. You know, naming those pieces is okay. But blaming yourself for like not to say like, I'm not a math person or whatever. So when you do that, you give people around you permission to do that. And if you say that's not what we do here, then you also sort of remove the permission slip from a set of really unproductive and damaging um, it's a narrative that you're saying, like, we just aren't going to say those things here. We, we are telling a different story. We're writing a different story. And you cast that vision as the leader, whether you're leading students or your own children or other community members, you cast the vision and you show the way and you just sort of, I hear the smile in your voice when you say that it's not an accusation, like, the accountability is an invitation to like rise to the occasion as opposed to like a you've been caught being naughty type tone. I don't know if that makes sense, but there is a difference in how you communicate the message, either like you're in trouble for talking like that versus like 
there's just so much more to you than that. And I believe in the bigger thing that we're doing here. There's there's some subtlety in the tone shift that I hear in the way that you talk about those things. And I think it's worth calling out. Mm. Yeah, I think that's really true. I tell a sad story in the book about when my little sister was in sixth grade and my parents went to the meet the teacher night and all the kids were there and the parents were there and the teacher got up to talk about what the curriculum would be like in each of the subject areas. And when she got to math, she said, and I don't really like math much and I wasn't very good at it. So we're not going to be doing too much oh this year. Oh <laughs> I mean, this was a long time ago in the eighties, but gave all of those children in that room permission yeah. to say, Oh, well, I'm not a math person. You know, a teacher is someone who children admire and respect and sometimes they love them. And if you, if we say those things, then we're just giving permission. It's just like, oh, this person I, I love and admire and want to be like just said they're not a math person. So it's okay for me not to be a math person. So we have to be really careful about that. Yeah, I think it's definitely um, a, a situation and you know, an overall experience where the words that we choose are so important. And in thinking about even that educator that you just told the story about, it makes me wonder, you know, where are their obstacles and roadblocks as far as in their mindset? What was their math story, right? Where those are the words that are, are coming out of their, out of their mouth and, and, and in turn, intentionally or unintentionally creating a certain culture that's in that classroom, like you said, where it's giving students the opportunity to opt out of that learning and, um, you know, Jennifer, when you were just speaking a little bit ago as well, it, it, this idea of consistency in the things that, that Carrie has shared and that you were sharing consistency in how we speak about mathematics, the consistency in the type of problems that we're putting in front of our students, the, um, consistency of our own math positive mindset is what establishes safety in that kind of a culture and environment that's being established. And I think um, in addition to taking the first, second, and third steps of creating math positive mindsets, I think um, there needs to be a consistency in those steps as well. Yeah. I love that image of a safe space. I think that's really important. Yeah. And when you were mm-hmm. talking consistency, Nikki, I was thinking of like an alignment of values in a way. So like if I believe this is true, it will be apparent in many of these different avenues, whether it's homework or tasks or conversations, mm-hmm. there's some like alignment as an outpouring of what I believe to be true. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Carrie, I have a question for you about, let's say, for example, I'm a teacher and I have a math positive mindset and I'm working on it with my students and I work for an administrator who does not. How would you coach me through some of those conversations to um, sort of carry the charge in my own classroom that I know is important and also continue to advocate for that system wide, like across our school, across our district? Those could probably be, because of the power differential, some tricky conversations. How would you coach us through that? That's exactly what I was thinking about the power structure. It's really tough. It's really tough. It's it's just like when the principal walks by the kindergarten and says, what are they doing playing with blocks? They don't need blocks in kindergarten. Get rid of them. They just don't understand. Not everybody right. had the, the, the great background, you know, the support and the 
inspiration that maybe you've had. So you have to give them a little, a little allowance for that and, and help them to see it. I, I think one great way is to invite administrators to come into your classroom to watch you teach math. And that can be intimidating on its own. But when they see the kinds of language that you use with the children, that's pos- math positive, like, I like how you're trying and you're not giving up instead of you're the first one done way to go. You know, (laughs) those kinds of of, um, experiences and the types of activities that you have them do where they are allowed to have productive struggle and given time to do that so that they can see, you know, that a rich mathematical problem isn't solved, you know, maybe even in one math period, it might take multiple. And Mm. when they see that over, over time and they see um, the kind of positive climate in your classroom, oftentimes uh, administrators will will ask other teachers to then come into your classroom to see how what you're doing. So we need to give administrators a little bit of a break on that. They don't they can't know everything about everything. They're doing their best and and they have a lot on their plate. Uh, so we just need to be a good example as much as we can. And you know when we're given opportunities to to go to a professional development or to read a, a book or something, we need to be willing to share that out in faculty meeting. You know and and offer to do a book study or uh, a PLC on something, if we feel strongly about it and we think that the school would benefit from it, then it's okay for us to step up and lead out in those areas. Yeah, that's brave work you're talking about right there. It, it can be really oh. tricky to, to do that and to be brave and to risk the whole faculty saying no thanks and to say okie doke and, and offering all the same next term or whatever, you know, the the, the long game, playing the long game on the process of what it is for adults to also walk through their own productive struggle with this and um, to keep your eyes sort of looking forward and moving forward and carrying forward that in what you would describe as sort of like a really grace-filled engagement with everyone on a learning trajectory. So we're all on one and to encounter where people are as absolutely okay with where they are is really beautiful. Yeah, we would want the same. We would want them to treat us the same way about something else. You know, everybody can't be in the same spot. But as long as we're all moving forward, and really, we can we can close our door and do what what we feel is good and right for kids in our own classroom too. When it really comes down to it, we have that kind of integrity mm-hmm. for our own work mm-hmm. too. Absolutely. Okay, so Carrie, I know that you've spent, you know, spent a, a recent chunk of your time uh, authoring your book. <laughs> so we're gonna, I have a question for you about books, and that's gonna transition us into our what we call three and three. And so we have three questions for you to sort of semi rapid fire answer in about three minutes or less. Um, and that first question is what are you currently reading right now? Or, um, or what is a book that you might recommend for others to read? And it doesn't have to be education related. Oh boy, that's a great question. I am actually working on updating my children's literature that has a math kind of focus (laughs) that I use for my classes. Um, Any kind of picture book that has anything mathy in it. I want to read and buy and share with my students because I want them to incorporate more literacy with their math teaching, partly because they are more comfortable with literacy and I want it to be a bridge for them for mathematics. So right now I am, I am uh, going through as many 
catalogs and bookstore shelves as I can to find wonderful new math books. And I found a new one. It's called Now What? A Math Tale. And it is by Robbie Harris. And the illustrations are by Chris Chatterton. And they're so cute. They're a combination of photographs and and um, acrylic, oh, wow. it looks like, painting. And I just love the book. It's an early picture book, but it has the unit blocks, like the little Melissa and Doug set, you know, of the, of the wooden blocks in, in different um, configurations in the story. And it's so cute. And there's a puppy. Yes. Can't so how can you lose with that? <laughs> Any kind of picture. Any kind of picture book with math, I love. We're going to tag you in a tweet and get the whole Twitter universe to sit, share their recommendations for children's literature with you. Yes. I love it. There you go. I, love it. I like that. Well, you know, being an author, being an educator, being a human being, um, we all experience stress and we need activities and opportunities and space to decompress or relieve stress. So, you know, I'm curious, Carrie, what do you do to decompress or relieve stress? Uh, that's, that's a great question, too. Well, my husband and I have been married for 25 years. Congratulations. Have, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> we have eight children yeah. and the youngest is four and the oldest is 22 and he just got married and how I relieve stress is by going to rock concerts with my husband I we, love it we, isn't that silly just all the 80s bands That's that are fabulous. you know starting to kind of disappear a little bit we try to go to as many as we can I love it that is, that's that's so fun. Um, one of the things that we feel is so important to have a conversation about, you know, with anyone that Jennifer and I get a chance to have conversations with is what is one universal truth about teaching and learning that guides the decisions that you make as an educator? Oh, wow. I think that mindset is one of my universal truths but we've talked about that a lot. I think another of my universal truths for teaching is that we learn to learn math by doing math. And the more math positive experiences we have, the better our brains will be able to respond to math challenges. So I like my class to be very hands-on, even though I'm working with adults my students are getting ready to be teachers. We do elementary math games and lessons and activities because maybe they didn't have the greatest experience growing up in math. And maybe they do have a little math anxiety that lingers. And I want them to feel joyful. I want them to feel like three hours just flies by and that they had a great time and that they can remember those feelings when they're planning their math curriculum. And remember that when they're doing math, they're learning math. They have a positive affect and um, that they can make a great impact on children by um, using these types of techniques that we learn in my class and that they'll have fun doing it. Hmm. Well, there's no doubt in my mind because um, hearing the joy uh, in your voice, being able to picture that smile on your face, I have no doubt that those mm -hmm. students of yours are going to walk away um, with that universal truth as one of their own as well. So, 
I hope so. I hope they don't just say it to get an A in the class. Well, if they do, then <laughs> we get then we get to have you back for another conversation about effective grading. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> um, Carrie, we just want to thank you so much for spending this time with us, for engaging in a conversation. Uh, for our listeners who would want to find you out on the interwebs, whether that's Twitter or anywhere else on the internet, where do they find you? Yeah, on Twitter, I'm um, at Dr. Carrie Cutler. No period on uh, doctor. Okay. And um, same on Instagram. And my Facebook, I think, is Dr. Carrie S. Cutler. I had to throw the S in there to change things up a bit. <laughs> but yeah, I would love to interact with people online. I love hearing people's experiences in mathematics and teaching and learning. And from parents, too. I think it's always interesting to, to open our community a bit more to parents as well. I appreciate that call so much. Well, again, thank you so much for your time, Carrie. We wish you all the best with the upcoming release of your book. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it.
Thanks for tuning in. Subscribe, download, and review wherever you find your podcasts to stay up to date with the latest episodes from Method to the Mathness. Your comments and reviews mean a lot to us. So share with us what you think and who you would like to hear from. Come find us on Twitter at Jennifer L. Math and at Nikki underscore Math Soul. That's N-I-K-K-I underscore Math, M-A-T-H-S-O-L. And use the hashtag Method to Mathness. That's method, the number two, mathness. Thanks for listening.